As we dismiss the children this morning for Children's Church, pray with me if you would. Father, you are, you are worthy of praise. Father, you, you are great. We bring our praise only to you because only you are worthy of it. And Father, as, as Nate had prayed this morning, that your spirit is here with us, and, and we are thankful for that. We just pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to the, the message that you would have this morning, um, to change our lives, to be able to take the message, take your love, your words, to a dark world around us to change other lives. Father, we recognize that's all your work, and we just praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning is going to be a little bit of a continuation in some respects from last week. In the last week we talked about um, what it looks like to be a member inside the church, what the body looks like. We spoke about us being many and varied, meaning there, there's, we come from lots of different backgrounds and uh, things like that. You know, we, we talked about serving one another and uh, having relationships with one another. And what I want to do is I want to look a little bit this morning um, at, at one aspect of that when we talk about serving one another. Because that can sometimes be confusing. You know, what, what, it, what does it really mean to serve and why do we do it? Um, and to help illustrate it this morning, uh, we're going to look at an unusual encounter in the Bible and two unexpected persons as, as we go through this. So our main passage this morning is going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, where James is talking about um, faith without works being dead. And before we get into it, I, I think it's worth always having context, always taking context in, you know, when we're reading passages and when we're going through the Bible. Now, when James wrote this, he specifically addresses it to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So this is primarily to a Jewish audience, so kind of keep that Jewish mindset um, you know, in, in your head as we're going through this. And you know, he, uh, some of the things we need to, to think about is you know, the Jews were raised with the law. Right? This was their tradition for a long time, so typically uh, the Jews would struggle with this. And we see that James addresses this, Paul addresses this, Jesus addresses it. You know, the, the struggle they have of works through the law, always trying to earn righteousness. And so he's, he's really trying to address that, and I think that's part of um, why he's, he's sending this message to them. Uh, it, it's likely that they were still struggling with the teachings that Jesus had. Because uh, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus had taught, right? Uh, the Pharisee came by, there was the guy on the side of the road, and the Pharisee went to the other side, like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to go there. The Levite came along, oh, I'm not going to go over there. And then the Samaritan, who the Jews looked down on, came along. He showed acts of kindness and mercy to this person who was laying on the side of the road. Um, 
So, you know, that's just one of the examples that, that we look at. And we look at Jesus's, I'll call it controversial statement, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve, right? I mean, you know, it, it, it was probably something when you start looking at serving other people with the Jewish mindset looked on just, you know, obeying the law, there was probably a lot of confusion in there as well, which they struggled with. Um, and of course, Jesus didn't just say that, he, he lived it out, right? We, we see in the, the New Testament that it's filled with acts of love and mercy performed by Jesus, right? So he, he definitely practiced what he preached, obviously. Um, as we go through this passage, we'll also see, again, with it being a Jewish audience, James refers to the Shema, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and also uh, brings Abraham into the picture. So, you know, he's, he's really couching this argument to his Jewish audience with a lot of Jewish tr tradition and background and, and references. So we'll see that as well. Because remember, during the early church period, most churches primarily were Jewish. Um, Gentiles may have been a little bit predominant in some, but it seems primarily the church leaders, at least, were Jewish. So um, that's why I think we continue to have this, this struggle that goes on. So with that context in mind, and, and just thinking about why James is writing this and, and to who he's writing it to, let's go ahead and read. Um, so turn to... If you haven't already, turn with me, if you will, to James 2, uh, 14, and we'll go through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So as we look at this, you know, obviously James has just presented the arguments and counter arguments. He's, he's really uh, laying something out for, for his audience. But it's good to understand some of the terms we're talking about. Because, um, you know, we may have different definitions of, well, what does faith mean? Uh, there, there are sometimes people say, ah, you know, just have faith in that, or yeah, just believe that, um, without really having a, a concrete definition of what that means, and sometimes 
faith can be taken in sort of a secular sense as well. But what James is talking about here when he uses the word faith, this is the Greek word pistis, which brings along with it uh, the idea of belief, trust, confidence. Um, and belief can be a little bit iffy. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, you know, again, belief in our modern context can have a lot of different meanings to it. Um, but what I want to do is, thinking about that definition of peace to faith, let's look at it actually in Scripture where it's used in context, and this may help a little bit. Because I really want us to understand what, what we mean by faith and what James means here. So if you would, I want to look at this in context over in Hebrews. Uh, the main part of the passage we'll look at is Hebrews 11, but let's back up just a little bit in Hebrews 10, uh, 22 through 24. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. There's, there's lots of different uh, ideas of who it could be, but we, we don't know. Um, but we do know that, you know, again, he's, he's writing it to a Jewish audience. And what he's talking about here in 10 is actually full assurance of faith. Right, so again, it's, it's kind of a mirror to that argument that James just made. Uh, it kind of goes hand in hand with it. And if we look at 10, 22 through 24, in the context of full assurance of faith, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works so again we, we see the both of them going hand in hand right about the the faith and stirring up the good works the confidence of the insurance if we jump ahead to hebrews 11 1 but actually let's go one verse ahead, and let's read the very end of 10. We'll include 10.39 in with 11.1. So again, this is continuing that context of assurance of faith. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there again, the author of Hebrews, right? He's using that, um, that word, what he's referring to in 1139, or I'm sorry, 1039 and 111 is that word pistis again, right? That, that trust and confidence. However, what he was looking at in 22 through 24 was a variation on a pistos, which is someone who's faithful and reliable, right? So there, there's the faith of somebody who is reliable, somebody who is um, trustworthy, who keeps their word, and then there's also the variation of having trust and confidence in that, knowing that it, it's true, knowing that it will, it will come along. Because one thing that, you know, we can, as I alluded to, we can kind of get confused on a little bit is thinking that faith and belief are always the same thing and that it 
is just a, well, we, we trust things will work out in the end. And that's not really what we're talking about here in James, right? It, it's more of the, we trust, we know, we have the assurance because God is faithful. He has proved himself to be faithful. That's what James is talking about to his audience as well when they're talking about having faith, right? And, and what that faith actually produces. And that faith is from God. To help kind of illustrate the point a little bit, um, I want to read a couple of quotes that, that maybe help fill in some of the blanks and fill in some of the areas maybe I'm not hitting terribly well. Uh, there, there, I want to read a quote by John Calvin and another one by William Tyndale. They're very short ones. So Calvin says, Faith is knowing what is his will towards us. Therefore, we hold faith to be the knowledge of God's will towards us. So we know that faith is knowing the knowledge of God's will towards us. And how do we know what God's will is towards us for our lives, right? Right here in the scriptures. That's why it's important uh, to really spend time in the word, to know God, to know his promises, and to see the illustrations of him being faithful to his people to look back at our lives, to look back at where God has been faithful to us, where we have trusted and he has, he has come through. That's the importance of us being able to look back and to understand those things. And I think that's what Calvin is saying here as well. You know, it, it's knowing that, that God is faithful. He, he has a will for our lives and he will fulfill that as he always promises to. William Tyndale says, right faith is a thing wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. So it's important to understand what Tyndale is saying here, that again, if we look at kind of the faith and the belief, uh, people often say, yeah, I believe something. And why I say it's different from faith or can be is, it, just like Tyndale says, it's something that's wrought by the Holy Spirit, which is scriptural, right? I mean... It's God who does the moving, the Holy Spirit in our heart that transforms us and generates that faith. So, you know, that's, when we look at faith, that's initiated by the Holy Spirit. To kind of give a little bit of illustration on the faith versus belief, and maybe this will help balance it out, what I'm talking about with the sort of the secular view of it. If you've ever heard Maya's testimony, um, it's really sweet because she grew up during communism and, you know, there was the, the Greek Orthodox Church. That was the main church and, you know, you kind of went maybe for a funeral, maybe once a year for Easter and that was about it. Um, but at some point, some evangelical folks had witnessed to her, the Holy Spirit moved in her heart and she was excited. And she told her father, um, you know, I became a Christian because in that time in Bulgaria, it was really weird and you could be persecuted and things like that. And her father's response was, what do you mean you became a Christian? You're already a Christian. And people just identified themselves as Christians because, well, you're not a Muslim. So, of course, you're a Christian. You believe in God. You go to the Greek Orthodox Church once a year, maybe. Um, 
to bring it a little closer to home, we see that today. You know, in, in America, you ask most people, do they believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God, of course. Um, some places, you probably won't get that, but, you know, if, if you did surveys, especially in the Bible Belt, everybody, you know, would say, yeah, they believe, or most people anyway. Um, you know, I remember, Matt, you shared about Charles Spurgeon, how he, he said it was respectable to go to a church. You know, it was just kind of what you did because you were a business owner. So, of course, you know, you, you, you go to church because who wants to do business with somebody who, who goes to church? So they would just say, yeah, I believe in God. You know, you have a head knowledge. And that's really what it is. What I'm talking about is that when we talk about belief, oftentimes it's just a head knowledge where faith is more of the heart knowledge. And I think that's an important distinction because it can cause issues and it can cause us to, to be confused and, and mistake one for the other. So that, that's kind of faith. You know, looking at it. it, it's wrought by the Holy Spirit. It's something that God gives us. It is an assurance of who he is, what he does. He keeps his promises that he is faithful we have faith in that. There's, there's two different views to it, or two different sides of it, actually. But James goes on, you know, he starts out talking about faith, but he also talks about works, right? And, you know, works can look a, a couple of different ways. So, you know, as he goes through in 18 through 26, you know, he says, okay, well, you, you have faith, you know, you, you have assurance that God will keep his promises. You have uh, assurance of your salvation, or you have assurance of, of other things, of God being faithful. Um, well, I have works, right? And some would say, you know, that you have to show those works coming out of that. And, and what are works? Because to his Jewish audience, it's, it's possible that when we would talk about works, they're thinking, oh, just, you know, obey the law. Of course I do. You know, I, I still obey the law um, of Moses. I, I follow all the rules. I check all the boxes. And remember, this is one of the things that, that Jesus beat the Pharisees up over uh, quite well, is that they were outwardly looking righteous, and inwardly they, they were dead men, right? They, they didn't show acts of love, kindness, and mercy. They just put more guilt and more burden on to those who wanted to follow God, right? So when we're talking about works, that's really what, what we're talking about here are those, those acts of obedience, love, and mercy. That should be an outflowing of it. In his argument, you see that, where is it? It is in verse, um, I should have marked that, sorry. Right, verse 19, this is where I was talking about, you know, he, he references the Shema. Right, so in verse 19, you believe that God is one. Most likely, again, it's a Jewish audience. The Shema was basically the, the Jewish prayer um, that they would repeat. Uh, it, it's out of Deuteronomy, and it's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your might. So there where he's talking about, you know, you believe God is one, he's likely, again, Jewish audience. He's making the references back to their tradition. You know, what they would know is important, and that would be the Shema. So that's likely what he's saying there when he says you believe that God is one. Um, but I think also what he's starting to get into is, okay, you have a head knowledge, you have a recognition of that, that God is one. You know, our, our forefathers have been repeating this. We say it twice a day. Um, but is that just a head knowledge for you? Do, do you really believe that? Do you have faith in that? You know, is your faith grounded in God, or are you just basically repeating it because that's what we do out of, out of a tradition? You know, again, is it heart knowledge or is it really head knowledge? So one of the things I want to do as well as we're looking at that, so he goes in, this is interesting, because he says, you know, you believe that God is one, so do the demons. So this is that unusual encounter I, want, I wanted to, to bring up. If you would, turn with me to Luke 8, 26 and 28. Because I think this is, this, is a, this is something that James was talking about, and it's a clear illustration of head knowledge versus heart knowledge, right? Where someone can know something but not have faith, not have that assurance and that trust. Now, we don't, obvious, we don't talk about demons very much during messages for obvious reasons, but I, I think this is a good illustration, so, so I thought it appropriate to kind of use it, um, you know, today as we're, we're talking about a, an illustration of head knowledge and heart knowledge. So starting in, in Luke 8, 26, Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in the house but amongst the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. I think it's worth looking at that encounter and and what happened there, right? So he immediately, the, the demon inside this man immediately recognized Jesus because he knew he had seen him before, right? Because remember, this is the Son of God. The demons were once there. So he, he knew had knowledge, he knew who this was who was standing before him. And he cried out. This was likely some kind of a shriek. Um, we don't really know, but it, it, he, he cried out. Why would he have cried out? Likely it was because he knows what's coming. He knows there's an appointed time. We see elsewhere in Scripture where you know, the, the, there's a demon that says, you know, um, are you here to torment me before the appointed time? I'm paraphrasing that one, uh, shooting from the hip. But, you know, they know there's an appointed time. Again, there's a head knowledge that that demon has about the reality. He fell down before Jesus, right? This is possibly 
similar to a, a, a conquered victim bowing before a conqueror. You know, the vanquished before the, the conqueror. Uh, it's very likely it, it's that. He knows. He's bending a knee. There's, there's nothing he can do. He could run, right? But why would he run? Because he knows who it is standing before him, and he knows that there's nowhere he can go, right? Just like the reality of Psalm 138, 7 and 8 that David penned, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I go to flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there as well. So that is most likely, I would say, why the demon knelt before Jesus. One, because it was proper to, because of who Jesus was. But he knew running wouldn't do any good. But most importantly, notice how he addresses Jesus. Right, if we go back to the middle of verse 28, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The Pharisees, many times, show us a sign, show us a, a miracle, show us that you are who you say you are. This demon had no doubt who it was. Right Again, we have head knowledge here. But the important thing, and I'm not trying to put too fine of a point on it, but the important thing is this demon shows all of the, the signs of having head knowledge of who Jesus is. Right? He, he knew that he was standing before the Son of the Most High God. But did it change his heart? Did he show any kind of works of obedience, of love or mercy? No, in fact, when Jesus showed up, he was tormenting somebody created in God's image and wanted to continue to do so. So that is, I think, a clear illustration we see in Scripture where there's definitely head knowledge of who God is, of what God can do and what God does, but it doesn't change anyone's life. It, it, it doesn't cause a change in heart. It doesn't produce uh, any, any good works of obedience, love, or mercy. So let's go back to, to James. So after James uses that illustration of talking about, you know, the Shema and just the ritual of, of repeating, you know, God is one, etc. And, you know, he says, well, look, even the demons know who God is. You know, they have a head knowledge because they were created by him. They were there. They, they know. There's no doubt in their minds at all. He goes on, though. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith from works is useless? So now he switches the argument a little bit to something, again, remember, Jewish audience he's talking to. He, he brings Abraham into the picture, right? Because, you know, for a good God-fearing Jew, Father Abraham is one of the patriarchs. He's a prime example of 
of faith and obedience and, you know, is, is to be revered is probably a word we could use, um, but, but highly respected uh, by the Jewish community. So he brings in Abraham because for a Jewish audience, showing him as an example of faith and works would carry a lot of weight. And, you know, he uses that to drive home his point. But what was it about Abraham that should be a good example for the Jews, right? Because all the Jews would have been raised on, on the stories, you know, uh, knowing the Torah, just the tradition. They would know that uh, Abraham and Sarah were well, well advanced in years. Uh, previously, God had promised, you know, he, he had made a promise to Abraham that your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, right? And it was miraculous that Isaac was even born because of their old age. And then later we see that Abraham had believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Isaac was born. And then later when, you know, Isaac had to be big enough to carry a, a rick of wood up a hill, so he's probably, you know, a couple of decades maybe later. Uh, what God says to Abraham is, hey, you know, your, your son that I gave you, I want you to sacrifice him. So go to where I'm going to show you. And, you know, Abraham obeyed, right? And, and we know how the story goes that, you know, he's, he's, he has faith that, Okay, God promised that my descendants will be more numerous. He provided one child by a miracle. If he asks me to sacrifice this, he is faithful to what he promises. He will keep his word as he did before. Um, again, it's that Greek word apistos where God is, is faithful and reliable. So he's using that example that his his Jewish audience would know and it would help resonate with them, right? That Abraham was told he had faith and that faith that he had, that pistis, produced works. It produced obedience in this case. So he uses one of the prime examples to, to help them illustrate and hopefully get the point to his Jewish audience that, okay, even Father Abraham, he had faith. That faith produced something, and he had works to go along with it. In this case, it was the work of obedience to God because he had faith that God was faithful. So, you know, he, he uses that, and I think that was a good, a good illustration um, for his audience to, to help bring the point home. After he makes the, after he makes the illustration of Abraham, he goes on and he brings in uh, Rahab. This is the other unexpected person that shows up in our uh, our passage here, right? Because remember, again, he's talking to a Jewish audience, 
right? He's, he's just talked about the Shema. He's just talked about Abraham. He's using illustrations that would resonate with the Jews. And then he brings in someone who is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, right? His, his Jewish audience is potentially, when they're reading this, they're like, why is, why is this Gentile dog being mentioned in the same line of thought as Father Abraham? Right, because, you know, again, there was probably a lot of them who were coming out of that that still saw that divide between Jew and Gentile, which is addressed in, in many of the letters from Paul and James, etc., but I think there's a reason why he brings Rahab into this, this discussion to use as another example immediately following Abraham. As the church rapidly is growing in, in the first century here, like, like I said before, high Jewish population, people who are, have been raised on Jewish tradition, they basically have a Jewish mindset. But like we talked about last week, uh, about us being many and varied and coming from different backgrounds, you know, different gender, different ethnicity, different social class, different background, the church is made up of a wide variety of people. And this is something that I think the early Jewish audiences struggled with. Uh, again, you know, they wanted to impose the Jewish laws and traditions on Gentiles coming in. So I think what James's point is in bringing in Rahab is to use her as an example for the Jews to say, look, the, it's not just the Jews who receive this, this faith and have to produce good works. It's the Gentiles as well. It's us, right? We, we receive that faith and that faith should produce good works, just like it did with Father Abraham. So I think that's, that's where he brings both of them in, because I thought that was just kind of unusual for a Jewish audience for him to, uh, to talk about Abraham, use him as the example, which would have resonated, and then go on to somebody completely different, like I said, on the opposite end of the spectrum. But I think that James does a pretty good job there of clearly illustrating to his audience, and I think to us too, right? What is faith, and what should the faith produce? And where does faith come from? And that there is a difference between faith and head knowledge. You know, we've seen a few illustrations here of, of just head knowledge, but a head knowledge doesn't cause an inward change. The Holy Spirit isn't moving to draw somebody to works of obedience, of love, of mercy, like Jesus is illustrated in what Abraham had performed um, in that example. So he ends with, for as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works as dead. And he, he kind of wraps it up there, essentially letting his audience know, just reinforcing everything that, hey, if you, if you claim to have faith, if you believe that God is faithful, he is reliable, he is dependable, 
that the promises he makes and the promises he makes in his word are trustworthy, then that faith, that movement of the Holy Spirit in us should cause an outward change. It should cause us to to show that to the world. And that's kind of what we talked about last week, right, with the serving each other, you know, the, the acts of, of mercy and love and some of the people who were, who were identified as workers, etc. So he makes it very clear that, you know, if, if you don't, if you claim to have faith and you're not showing works, something is off balance, right? But I want to go back and look at something that, that's kind of interested and a little bit buried in there. And that is actually something that he says in verse 24. Right? Because he's, he's talking about, you know, you have faith, the Holy Spirit moves in you, and that should produce some work, some outward expression of inward change is the way we say it a lot. But in verse 24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So that almost on the surface seems like it just contradicts everything he just said, right? That, that you have faith and that faith should produce something. But what it sounds like he's saying here, he's saying, well, it's not really the faith that justifies a person. It's, you know, it's works, and so I think what we need to do there is just look at what do we, what does he mean by justification? And this is a much deeper topic that probably somebody like Matt would, would handle at some time who could do it a lot more justice than I could. Um, but, you know, as we look at the doctrine of justification, you know, does what James say here contradict what he just said or counter what Paul says about we're saved by faith alone. Because in Romans 8.30, Paul clearly says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Right, so again, it can sound like, well, you know, this is, Paul is clearly saying this is a work of the Holy Spirit, but is James saying that it's our works that justify us, right? And, and if we don't take those in context, full biblical context, and really look at what does that word justification mean, we can get confused, and I think that's where some confusion does come from. In the New Testament, typically, at least in these two examples, the word that they're using is the Greek word dikaiyo, and with it, that carries two different meanings, depending on the context. The first meaning is to declare righteous, to be justified by faith, as Paul often teaches, is to have Christ impute his righteousness on us. Right, so that first meaning is to be justified is Christ's imputed righteousness on us. Again, it's a work of the Holy Spirit and God putting that righteousness on us. Right? And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 8.30. If we look at the second meaning of it that it can have depending on the context, 
it's to show to be righteous, right? So one is to declare righteous, like God declares someone to be righteous. That's the first meaning of it. The second meaning to show to be righteous is if God imputes his Christ's righteousness on me, then I demonstrate, I show, I justify that inward change, right? It's more of the showing on the person who's had that imputed righteousness. I, I think this is clearly illustrated in Luke sixteen fifteen, uh, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart. Right? When Jesus says you justify yourself here, he's talking about that second meaning. The person showing themselves to be righteous, having that outward expression, that performing the acts of love and mercy and obedience. That's what he's talking about there. So that second meaning is also what James is talking about in his context. So it's not the first one where the works make us righteous. It's Christ imputes his righteousness on us, and that causes the outward expression. Right? So, so two different meanings of that same Greek word, depending on the context, and that can, that can cause some confusion. And I think that's where a lot of confusion comes from in our modern era because it very much is a reality that some people believe it's Christ plus, right? The Holy Spirit moves in your heart. Christ has saved you by his works, and there's something else you have to add to it, and, and that somehow helps save us. And, and that's, I think, where a lot of confusion comes from, and people can point to that verse and say, well, but, but James says we're justified by our works. It's different meaning because of the context. Same Greek word, different meaning. And the, the importance of this, I think, is best summarized by Wayne Grudem. I want to read something out of uh, Systematic Theology, an introduction to biblical doctrine. This is, this is a book that that Matt and Steve made me read. Um, it's a really good one, too. It's like that thick. Well, it's actually this thick because it's electronic, but if I had the real one, it would be like that thick. And what Wayne Gruden says is, a right understanding of justification is absolutely crucial to the whole Christian faith. Once, once Martin Luther realized the truth of justification by faith alone, he became a Christian and overflowed with the newfound joy of the gospel. The primary issue in the Protestant Reformation was a dispute with the Roman Catholic Church over justification. If we are to safeguard the truth of the gospel for future generations, we must understand the truth of justification. Even today, a true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone and all false gospels of salvation based on good works. So what Grudem is saying there is, again, when you think about Martin Luther, you know, we, we kind of know the story about him. Roman Catholic monk, he was like, ah, how can I earn salvation? Oh my gosh, you know, 
God is, is holy and righteous and, you know, there's nothing I can do. I can't measure up to that. And, you know, I, as hard as I work, as hard as I try, um, I just can't measure up. And, you know, his priest telling him, you know, go back to your cell, go to sleep, leave me alone. You know, it got that bad. But when he rightly understood that it didn't rely on him, he found freedom in that, right? And the rest, as they say, is history. So to wrap this up, just want to make a few comments, just to, to put a bow on everything we've talked about with, with faith, with works, with justification. Are good works required? Yes. Are they required to save us? No. Right? Again, it's the outward expression. That's why they're required. If the Holy Spirit is in us, and our hearts are changed by the love of Jesus Christ, we want to express that, we want to show that. But that does not save us, nor does anything else we do. To, to kind of paraf roughly paraphrase R.C. Sproul when he was having one of his cheeky moments, he said, I don't know why there would be any debate talking about this. Scripture is pretty clear that we're all saved by works. They're just not your works. They're not my works. It's the works of the Holy Spirit, the works of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to clearly understand. People tend to get confused with the, the role of faith and belief. Right? Just saying, I believe something, is a sign of head knowledge. The faith is that head knowledge becoming heart knowledge. And that changed heart produces those works of obedience, of love, and mercy to, to each other, right? So that's what we need to really take away from this and understand, right? It's not works. Those works that R.C. Sproul talked about, that's the works of the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus Christ living a sinless life, his death, burial, and resurrection, those works are what bring us salvation and make us justified. It's nothing that we can do. If you don't know that to be truth, or if you have questions about that, if you struggle with that, please see myself, see Matt, see Steve. We'd be happy to talk with you about that, to explain any of that. Um, of faith alone. If you for some reason, believe that it's works that have to be in there to save you. We can talk through it. Um, it's not, folks. It's Jesus Christ alone, and that's where we just need to keep all of our, our faith in that and in his works. So as we close here, um, Steve, Nate, Stephanie, y'all want to make your way up? No, stay. Okay, y'all stay. Y'all stay. Just, Steve, come on up, and we'll, we'll pray. Father, just thank you for your word. Thank you for us being here today, for the privilege to come together to worship you, to just hear the truth of your word. And, and Father, just pray that you would move in our hearts and be in our lives and to just help us to show acts of love and kindness and mercy to a lost and dying world 
and just to follow the example that, that we have from Jesus, our Lord, of, of obedience. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.